Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, D.C.-based Pacifica host, political analyst, and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon, with the Corporate Media Watch episode this week, Consistency and Lies. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. So let me talk this week. You know, at, at times I run off the mouth about specific things. And now um, I'm going to talk a little bit, bit more more general, maybe something I've talked about before, but what the heck. And that is, I, I you know, I think that it is critical because this is, I'm just saying what's bothering me. What's bothering me about this country we're in right now? What's bothering me about the people in the country? What's bothering, you know, I'm glad I have this show. I can just out, out, complain about everybody. I'm complaining about everybody, right? The people in this country, my people, the black folks, the people call themselves on the left, blah, blah, blah. It's shocking. It's surprising to me, I guess, being who I am. I'll tell you why. You know, I always say this, like a Bill Parcells, being a big football fan, I used to like Parcells, of course. I was a fan of the team here, a name that we can't use anymore. We're calling the Commanders now, right? And Joe Gibbs, so that was my man. Joe Gibbs, you kidding me? You know, everybody in D.C. knows Joe Gibbs. That man was a saint in his in this. He was beloved, right? Um, but Parcells said something that I've repeated many times. You are what your record says you are, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I study Zen, so we believe in, you know, we talk about sudden enlightenment where, you know, boom, in the blink of an eye, you can be enlightened and you can learn and change, all that kind of stuff, right? But for the most part, it's a safe, uh, consistency is a safe bet, right? And that's what bugs me, really what bugs me about, about Americans. People who know the record of this country, um, foreign policy, right? Look, 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 just from a simple perspective. If I get in, you know, the subway, sitting next to somebody and they steal my wallet today, right? And I got a book bag and I sit next to them tomorrow and they steal my MacBook Air out of my book bag. And then next week I get in there and I got, a, I don't know, an iPod or something, whatever, you got to name it, right? And they steal that, right? At some point, it's going to dawn on me, man, don't trust that dude. And somebody, hey, sit next to Joe. Nah, man, that, that joke is going to rob me again every time I see him. And and I would understand the pattern, and I would see it, and I wouldn't trust Joe, and I'd know Joe's a thief, right? It's common sense. Anybody, Everybody listening to me would, right? But for some reason in this country, when it comes to foreign policy, we can't do that. We can't do it. Now, don't get and and in our country, we get mad at those who are consistent, who who look and say, when it comes to foreign policy, I'm going to judge the U.S. foreign policy by the standard of history, by the standard of their record. It's like it's like what happens? Joe steals my MacBook. He steals my iPad. He steals my wallet. Right. And then it comes up and somebody says, you're going to sit next to Joe. Yeah, I'll trust him this time. And Joe looks at me and says, oh, man, I ain't stealing nothing you got here. You got money? Yeah, you can lay it right next to me. I won't steal it. And I trust him this time. Well, that wouldn't be very bright, would it? Because you know what he's going to do? He's stealing that money because he's a thief. That's who he is. I might like him. I might not like him. But I got to understand that the man's a thief. And if you put he may be it may be some mental thing he has. Maybe he can't help himself. But he's a thief. So my perspective is from a from a from a the perspective of history, right? If I look at it and Americans and this is what shocks me that Americans believe stuff. If I look at it and I say, what happened regarding the Korean War? And I look at the history of the Korean War and see what we did, right? Bombed, killed two thirds of the people in Korea bombed the place flat, bombed it to the point where we ran out of things to bomb, violated every international law known to man, right? And lied to the American people about it. Vietnam, what did we do? Look up a book called, there's a book I got at home called The Phoenix Program. Might want to read that. And you might not feel real good about our situation in Vietnam. Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers. What did we do? We lied to the American people about everything about Vietnam. Knew they weren't going to do it. Lied about what we were doing there. Covered and hidden everything up, right? 
Need I go back to the first Iraq war? In the first Iraq war, they, there was a very low, 1991's the year. We had a very low support for that war. So you know what they did? Right here on K Street. The United States had hardly no support. Oh, we can't go to Iraq or Kuwait, right? So the United States then goes to K, K Street and gets this firm and cooks up a lie. And they say, the Iraqis are pulling babies out of incubators in Kuwait, soldiers, and throwing them on the, on the floor. And they brought somebody before Congress, a woman, and she testified before that. And we later found out that it was a lie. That she was not like somebody who worked in the hospital. She was literally the daughter of someone who was either, I don't remember if it was the ambassador or whatever it was. It was an act. It was an absolute lie. And afterwards, what happened? Support for, the, to, for war went up to 60% and they did it. Now, need I go to the, I go to the next Iraq with weapons of mass destruction? Everything was a lie. We later find out from a CIA operative named Tyler Drumheiler. You can edit this right now. You can go to YouTube and look it up. He was on 60 Minutes. And what did Tyler Drumheiler say? He said, well, I was in charge of the CIA for um, Europe. And we got all this information, and I went and I met with Bush and Cheney and Condoleezza Rice, and I said, look, I got good news. Here in the CIA, we've turned one of the closest people to uh, Saddam Hussein, and um, we know for sure there's no weapons of mass destruction. He said, and I expected them to be excited. You can go find this yourself. It's on YouTube. It was on 60 Minutes. And he said, I expected them to be Excited. Now, we don't have to go to war. We found out there's no weapons of mass destruction. He said, and they looked at me with an icy stare, and they said, this is not about weapons of mass destruction. This is about regime change. In other words, we are lying to the American people so we can go to war. Have you noticed a pattern here? Uh, Afghanistan. Have you heard of the Afghanistan papers? Look them up. Came out around 2012. And what was released in the Afghanistan papers? It was all lies. That in the Pentagon, they were saying, yeah, we, can, we don't even have a definition for winning. We can't ever win. But we got to tell the people we're going to win, blah, blah, blah. And what did they continue to tell us? Yes, we've got to stay in, a, in Afghanistan for the women or the, I don't know, the LGBTQ. We can't have them be mistreated. You know, they just made something up. They didn't care about the women or the LGBTQ people in, in Afghanistan. It was pipelines. It was stealing stuff. It was using buildings, uh, CIA uh, uh, sites where they could, you know, a spy on Russia and China. That's what that was about. But the bottom line is this. Look up the Afghanistan papers. Don't believe me. Go online and look it up and tell me what you find. They lied to us the entire time. And and what did they say? We can't possibly leave Afghanistan. Why? Because there'll be terrorism and there'll be, every, oh, we can never leave Afghanistan. It'll, things will fall apart. It'll go to hell if we leave. And what happened? What happened? On a given Tuesday afternoon in August, about two years ago, they left Afghanistan up and walked out. Remember, they told us for 20 years they couldn't possibly leave. But when it was thinking we're ready to go, they're like, hey, we done made enough money. How much we made? $2.3 trillion. Let's get out. And they left. Do you notice a pattern here? Every single conflict we are lied to. Because here's why. Here's why. Because if the American people knew the truth about U.S. foreign policy, they would never support it. If the American knew and understood the truth about foreign policy, if they knew what we were doing around the world. How about a book? I can tell you book after book. The Jakarta Method. The Jakarta Method was about the United States in Indonesia in 1965, and the U.S. Um, went in there, and we said, oh, we're going to help them out. We did regime change, and we did an operation where we killed about a half a million people. Anybody that was considered left or communist slaughtered them, hundreds of thousands of people. The book is The Jakarta Method. Look up. Um, all the Shah's men, Another, all books I've read, all the Shah's men. What was that about? That was about the United States going in to Iran and overthrowing the country. And, and uh, Mohammed Mossadegh was the leader of the country. And what did they do? They then divvied up the oil and they gave like 60 percent to the United States. And then a certain percentage to, they, to, to the U.K., they divided it. But you think they told the American people that if you look, what about Cuba? 
What's happening with Cuba? Oh, terrible thing. No, Cuba was a CIA mafia where they did oh, anything they wanted. They did gambling. They did sexual pedophilia. They did any prostitution, anything they wanted. And they had a small group of a ruling elite class that allowed him to do that in Cuba. And Fidel Castro overthrew it. And then they said he was evil when he overthrew it and ran out the far right wingers that were oppressing the rest of the people, mostly brown. Right. Lied about Cuba. Do I need to go? Nor, don't even start me on Nicaragua. The Sandinista the rebels. Right. Don't even start me. What did we do there? We slaughtered people everywhere on the left, killed nuns, raped uh, and killed nuns, preachers on and on and on in Nicaragua. And we said the Contras are evil. And what were we doing at the same time? The CIA, they made movies about it. The CIA was working with the Contras, shipping cocaine into the black communities in the United States. They made movies. What was, I think one was Air America. A couple. So what was going on? Every single time the United States is born, our foreign policy, we're involved in a bunch of crap. Now, what happens? Five, ten years later, we look back and we say, oh, man, we were rotten to the core in Vietnam. Hey, what about that? Yeah, that was bad. Ooh, we lied about the, 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 lied about the um, weapons of mass destruction. But it never fails. When the United States ventures into another unthinkable, unjust military action, the people that know this history go, yeah, but this time I think we're doing the right thing. It's always, every single time, it's a lie. It's international war crimes. We are on the wrong side every single time. And every single time when they start their next misadventure, there's all these Americans saying, but you know, Garland, I, I, come on, I think this time, I mean, okay, sure. Every single other time was criminal. But this time's different. You are what your record says you are. And I never believed. I didn't believe weapons of mass destruction. I didn't believe any of them. And right now, I don't care. Right now, Sudan, the United States is involved in there. We're wrong. Right now, the United States is Yemen. We are wrong in Yemen, the poorest country in the Middle East. And we're pumping weapons in there, slaughtering all those people. And most Americans don't even even know why. It has to do with access to the sea and shipping lanes. But we don't even talk about that one. Whether it's Ukraine, Taiwan, I'm going to tell you this. History says that every single time we are wrong. But when it comes out, which it will, if we're lucky enough to survive, when the truth comes out about Ukraine, when the truth comes out about Taiwan, you know what Americans will do 10 years from now? They'll say, yeah, Garland, did you read that book on uh, what we were doing in Ukraine and Taiwan? And I'll be like, read it. I could have wrote it. I was saying that at the time it happened. You know why I say that? Because it happens to me every time. I had uh, family members argue with me about weapons of mass destruction. Repeat talking points. Well, you know, Garland, if we don't deal with Saddam over here, then we might have to deal with him over there. How's he going to get? He don't even have a navy. How's he going to get over here? But they told us at one point they literally said, "Well, you know, Saddam Hussein could take these wooden drones off the coast." Literally, you can look us up. They said he can take these drones. We have pictures of them, and he'll be off the east coast. And he'll put weapons of mass destruction on them, and he'll fly them over this. And I'm thinking, well, that sounds great, except he doesn't have a Navy that can get to the East Coast. So it sounds good, except for the thing part where there's no Navy to get to the East Coast. Other than that, it's brilliant. We're being lied to. Thank you, Garland Nixon. And coming up next, a conversation with veteran actor John Voigt past, present, and future, from his dazed and confused Texas dishwasher hitting the streets of Gotham in Midnight Cowboy, the 1969 John Schlesinger-directed classic that kicked off the subversive Hollywood renaissance of the 70s to his current Chicago OG mobster in Mercy, and who started out as an actual cowboy in episodes of Gunsmoke and Cimarron Strip and who happens to be the brother as well of composer Chip Taylor, songwriter of Wild Thing and Angel of the Morning. First, Voight takes a memory lane excursion in the documentary Desperate Souls, Dark City and the Legend of Midnight Cowboy, opening in June. We had this little scene where I had to run half-naked down a, a dusty street. It was 115 degrees in Texas, in Midland, Texas. And we're sweating and everything, you know. 
But anyway, I do the shot, and it's the last shot. And we had a, just a little van that took us out there, took us all out there. And I came back, and I went around the van, and I saw in the shadow, uh, uh, you know, this, getting out of the sunshine, it was John. And John was... He was like this, shaking, you know. And I said, John, what's, what's, what's the matter? He said, what have we done? What have we done? We've made a movie about a dishwasher who goes and a lot of women in New York. What will they say? What will they say about this picture? I said, and I, and I knew he was having a complete meltdown, right? I didn't know what to do. I mean, I'm his friend. I want to help him. I grabbed him by the shoulders and I said, John, I looked him in the eye, we will live the rest of our artistic lives in the shadow of this great masterpiece. He looks up here. You think so? <laughs> and I said, I'm absolutely certain of it. <laughs> it was the only thing, it was the only thing that could get him out of it. This is why, it, you know, I said the most ridiculous thing I could think of, <laughs> but it turned out to be true. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. People stopping and staring. Can't see their faces, only the shadows of their eyes. I'm going where the sun keeps shining through the pouring rain. Going well, the weather suits my clothes. Banking off of the northeast winds, sailing on. Summer breeze and skipping over the ocean like snow. And now, John Voight discussing his Chicago gangster thriller Mercy, featuring a sort of female superhero. Then, some words about his upcoming Megalopolis, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. First, some scenes from Mercy then John Voigt phoning in from a film set in Bulgaria. Sean. Dad. Ryan Goshaw. Perhaps you can help me. I'm looking for my son, Ryan Quinn. Your son? You all waiting for somebody? Yeah, it shouldn't be too long. But all like I'm checking this out, I die. Neither do I. Ah! <laughs> Down, get up against the wall. Where are we going? I need you to wait in here. Can anyone please tell me where my son is being kept? Stay quiet, and we'll get out of this together. My father runs a clean operation. No, I suggest you give me that phone call. I assure you he was here with an FBI agent. The feds moved Ryan. Send the boys out to find him. Easy first assignment. Got easy my ass. Ellis. My partner's dead. Go, go, go. Take the back stairs down to the boiler room. What are you gonna do? Skills from a past life. We got some help on the inside. Captain Michelle Miller, Purple Heart, three-time gold star. You're searching for Ryan, and they are not gonna stop. Ryan, this family's going down, whether you like it or not. I had an agreement. She was just gonna hand Ryan back. She's working for the feds. <laughs> my brother. Hello, Prairie. How are you? Fine. How are you? And welcome to our show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. What was it about Mercy? Be very careful about the introduction you give me. Uh, why? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, okay. That was a joke. <laughs> that, oh. 
<laughs> okay. This film, what was it about Mercy, this film and this story that drew you in? Well, uh, several things. One of the things is uh, it's, uh, it's an action-adventure piece, you know. It uh, has thrilling, you know, whodunit kind of stuff. And it's fun. It's fun for, for audiences. And then what drew me was the part that I play, which is the head of an, an Irish mob in Seattle or someplace. And, uh, and the, the, the ability to work with a, an Irish actor by the name of Jonathan Reese Myers, who is a, a tremendous force. He's a great actor, and he's world-renowned. Everybody knows this great talent. And I had the opportunity to work with him. And, the, and there's a girl that is being introduced here to large audiences, Leah Gibson, who's, who's really quite terrific and, and, and great in the film. And so we, uh, that's what drew me to it. And uh, it turned out to be a very successful combination. Mm. And, in, and in terms of that OG Irish mobster, Patrick Big Boy Quinn, that grabbed you about playing him. What about his distinct combination of terror and occasional humor? Well, these, that's very nice of you to say all of that. <laughs> uh, I think I think there is a little of that stuff. Well, I think he's a, he's an interesting character, isn't he? Uh, a powerful force, and uh, I don't know. I just uh, I we I, the things that you're finding. Uh, in it are things that I probably contribute from my own personality and stuff. Hmm. But uh, I found the character to be very complex and very interesting, and uh, and and it all had to do with the relationship with his son. You know, hmm. so it's a it, in that way it's a father-son aspect that, that drew me to the piece. And what can you say about Leah Gibson as a kind of female superhero? And did she bring to mind for you at all Angelina running around on missions trying to save the world? That's exactly right. She reminded <laughs> me of Angie. Uh, and, of course, Angie was spectacular at this kind of thing. And, uh, and uh, this, is, uh, this is another in that genre. That's, that's right. And Leah's very good. And what are you doing in Bulgaria? What are you filming? I'm filming a piece called Shadowland, mm. uh, and uh, where I play a, a former president of the United States. Oh. Who's, <laughs> who's uh, being uh, threatened by many things. So that's, that's interesting as well. I'm in, the, uh, that, I'm in that mode. So if, you, you know, if I'm scared of you, it's part of the character. <laughs> And uh, and since you're over there, in terms of the violent world that we live in now, uh, whether on or off screen, as in Mercy or in the real world, what are your thoughts about the continuing wars in the real world going on around you right now? Well, I think I've been very clear, uh, Prairie, in terms of my understandings of what's happening. Mm. Uh, but uh, the, the loss of leadership, real leadership, when we have real leadership, there's peace yeah. and there's prosperity as well. So there are answers to what's going on right now, but we're in a dangerous time. So anyway, I, I, try, to, uh, I try to assess the situation and, and contribute what I can to some of the solution of it um, before I leave this plane of existence mm. and uh, before I leave the future generations to this uh, the dangers that I see exist now. Mm. And is there any sense of that? How you... about that? Isn't that a serious answer to that question? Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's good. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, in terms of that, what about what's going on? Is there anything going on around you now in Bulgaria that gives you more of a sense of what's going on? No, n not really. Uh, the, the, uh, we've seen in our country some very, very almost uh, unrecognizable aspects of violence and stuff like that. And, and Beverly Hills, they, they burned down some places and 
and uh, attack people in the street and stuff like that. I mean, that's crazy. In Bulgaria, it's relatively peaceful <laughs> at the moment, but they've been through a time of, they've been through a lot of violence themselves. So they know what it's like, and they're very warm people, actually. And getting back to mercy of... All people, all, I, I think all people, you know, we're, we're, we're all human beings. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and if we're taking, if we raised to, to appreciate, we go in a certain direction. And if we're, if we're attacked by a lot of temptation and twisted thoughts, we go in another direction. Right now, we have to, we have to uh, try to straighten things out and help the young people. So that's okay. what I think. Okay. And what out of your very distinguished film career has meant the most to you and has been the most memorable for you? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think I've been, I think just the fact that I've been fortunate enough to work in this area of, of, uh, of endeavor. I love movies. I love them. And I love storytelling. I think that comes from my father, who was a who was a golf professional, and a good dad, and a wonderful storyteller for children. and uh, And I think I'm trying to follow in his footsteps in some way uh, by being a good storyteller. and uh, and then and and so when I've been successful at it, uh, it it's it's made me you know, it gives me great satisfaction. When people come up to me and say, gee, that film was great, or that moved me so much, or that was exciting, it makes me feel good, because I know that I took them on a journey with the stories that I chose to tell, and uh, I gave them some joy in their life. Mm. It makes me feel terrific. Yeah. And why would you recommend that people see Mercy? Well, Mercy is very exciting, and it's an, an, an interesting uh, um, it's an interesting uh, uh, realm of, uh, of filmmaking, you know, this exciting action-adventure stuff, but it also has some drama here, and I think it's very intriguing um, and moving. So that's what I think. I think people are very satisfied. I've sat in a theater with people watching it, mm. and they, are, they get very, they almost talk to the screen at different times, oh. or they laugh, or, <laughs> or they shock. You know, whatever, and then they applaud at the end. Way well, hey, wonderful. That's that's what we came for. So uh -huh. it's a successful picture. Well, that's the thing to sit in with the audience. And I wanted to ask you, what can you say about your upcoming film Megalopolis and what you're up to in the film? Yeah, Megalopolis. Well, <clears throat> Francis Coppola is working on that film right now. We've finished shooting, and uh, I'm. Uh, I'm hoping that it turns out to be everything Francis wanted it to be when he started, you know, choosing all this this lovely cast, this amazing cast that he's put together. And uh, and I, I don't want to tell, t say too much about it, but mm. it's full. It's it's a great work of the imagination mm. and a, a really sincere effort by a wonderful man, an icon of our business, to try to leave something. For the, for the young people coming in, so it's 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 something to look forward to. I'm I'm looking forward to. It. I hope, hope it's successful in, in Francis's terms. Oh well, can you say whether you're in the film you're a good guy or a bad guy, like a mercy? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I, in in the um, in the film, I play a, a kind of I play the wealthiest man in this city, New, oh. New Rome. Rome is the city. It's an imaginary city, and uh, and I play the wealthiest man and the most influential uh, person in terms of the the uh, guidance of my nephew, who is uh, a genius, played mm -hmm. by Adam Driver, and I'm having problems with my grandchild, who's being played by Shia LaBeouf, ah. <laughs> and Shia LaBeouf is. It's quite brilliant, and I have, in in the uh, in the working of the film, I have uh, th there's someone who's been put aside by Adam Driver, a, a journalist, a woman journalist, a very attractive woman journalist, who I woo to marry, and I marry her, and that and that uh, and and 
that is my downfall in some way. And that character is played by Aubrey uh, Plaza, Aubrey, the great Aubrey Plaza. Yeah. Uh, and she is really, uh, she's really quite extraordinary. And so I had, a, I was really with great, you know, these great actors. They're great. That of this generation, mm. there are no better actors than those three. I think. Yeah. And what's it like being directed by Coppola? Well, he's <clears throat> he's a very interesting person. A very he's a very uh, uh, inquisitive person. He's a the head of a family, and that's the way he does his films. He becomes the head of the family, and uh, and he, he's uh, he well, he sketches out what needs to be done, and then when you get into it. He has this technique, in this film especially, where he changes his mind and talks you through it and does different things, and it becomes very uh, improvisational, too. Mm. So uh, he has he's established this extraordinary physical world, amazing, br brilliant mm. uh, physical world, un uh, very much brand new. No one's ever seen anything like it. Mm. And then... He Got, and then you've got these characters in it that represent aspects of himself, I'm sure. Mm. And uh, so we all played within this playground that he set up. Very interesting. And when John Voight looks in the mirror, what does he see? Oh, my God. I wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> what, what I, I, there was a time when I looked in the mirror and said, what a handsome fellow. <laughs> but now I look in the mirror and say, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Every every aspect of my life is written on my face, <laughs> but, well, but it's okay. I'm still I'm still going, so I'm very fortunate. Yeah, well, you, I think you still look really handsome in Mercy. So, <laughs> well, that's great. I'm so glad you said. Well, because I have a beard covering most of my face, which is great. Yeah, <laughs> women can't do that, unfortunately. So, um, <laughs> all right. Uh, and any last word about Mercy? Well, I just think it's a film that people will enjoy. I've had that sitting in the theater, as I said, with people applauding and stuff. It's an exciting film. So have some fun, kids. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much, John Voigt, for calling in from Isn't Bulgaria. Isn't that nice of you? Thank you so much. Pleasure talking to you. Okay, bye. And now a little of the Megalopolis soundtrack. Something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down This is Jim Messina and I wanted to let you know that I'm going to give a shout out here for Arts Express. There's bad lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speak in their minds. 
are getting so much resistance from behind. Every time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. And we'll go out now with the Arts Express screening room. How Hollywood Sells Us War. On this episode of Now That You're On The Left, You're Not Allowed To Enjoy Any Media, Hey Stop It Right Now, presented by Second Thought, we're going to look at Hollywood's crucial role in the military-industrial complex. From Marxist analysis of superstructures, to FOIA documents, and the propaganda of the American Office of War Information, we're going to examine how it is that the American disease of perpetual war gains public support from our film industry. Come on, it's gonna be fun. We're doing a Marxist analysis of Shrek, but for all of Hollywood. So where do we start? Well, a good place to begin talking about all of this is with the Department of Defense's direct involvement in Hollywood movies' depiction of the United States and its armed forces. To be clear, if you go to the DOD's website, they are very upfront about the fact that they are involved in Hollywood productions and in the way scripts for major blockbusters are written. What you might not expect is the, let's say, interesting way they like to phrase that involvement. Here's what the website reads. The Defense Department has a long-standing relationship with Hollywood. In fact, it's been working with filmmakers for nearly 100 years. Production agreements require the DOD to be able to review a rough cut of the film, so officials can decide if there are areas that need to be <clears throat> addressed before a film is released. While Hollywood is paid to tell a compelling story that will make money, the DOD is looking to tell an accurate story. Sure. We'll get to that last part in a second. But first, we should get an idea of the actual scale of DOD involvement. In a series of publicly accessible documents, you can get a list of all the movies and TV shows that the DOD admits publicly to have contributed to or denied assistance. The list goes back decades. And what's great about it is that there are little notes about what the DOD changed in each of these movies or the reasons they were refused assistance. For a good number of these movies, it's very clear that in return for access to military equipment and locations, which would otherwise be incredibly costly to reproduce for even big-budget studios, certain storylines and dialogues were altered or removed entirely. I've already talked on this channel about the media wing of the US military, specifically its influence on Twitch and in animated shorts targeting Gen Z in this video. Now that's a nice video. Boy, I love that video. You better watch that video after you're done with this video, I'll tell you right now. You won't forget, right? But that episode is focused on recruiting. While that is a major goal of the military's propaganda campaigns and it's meant to make war institutions look wholesome and good, it's really just one part of a much bigger project. And it's also much more obvious what's going on. It's the military saying how the military is great on its own platform, not on someone else's platform like a big-budget Hollywood movie. What the FOIA documents reveal is the much more subtle ways, the insinuations, the detailed rewrites that don't necessarily make the military look great, but that gloss over the realities that make it look bad, or that make sure more critical movies have a harder time getting produced, that they don't get access to the privileges the pro-military movies do. From the military's point of view, this kind of favoritism makes complete sense. Why would they promote a movie that makes them look bad by accurately reflecting the imperialist project the US has undertaken, especially since the end of the Second World War? They wouldn't, and they don't. The result of this favoritism is that the films that do get DoD support paint a pretty uniform image of the US military as heroic and exemplary in most cases, and only accidentally ineffective but ultimately well-meaning at the very most critical end of the spectrum. And because these pro-military movies end up saving so much on production cost and get access to military equipment and facilities for shoots, they are far more likely to get produced and to become blockbusters. It's the case for some MCU movies. It's Top Gun. It's Bond movies like Tomorrow Never Dies. Those are the movies that get DoD support and that get the cleanup treatment. Now, to be clear, movies that portray the military apparatus more accurately, with less of a rose-tinted hue, are still going to be made. But without State Department support, they might not reach the same blockbuster status as often or to such a degree as their more profitable box office neighbors. Surprisingly, the DoD's goal is incredibly transparent. Philip Strubb, director of entertainment media at the US Department of Defense, said it pretty plainly. 
Our desire is that the military are portrayed as good people trying to do the right thing the right way. That's probably our single most important imperative. And to make sure that it does happen that way, military organizations are willing to leverage the billions they have at their disposal in the form of military equipment and shoot locations to keep the movies on that line of the military can do no wrong. Here's another quote, this time from Robert Anderson, the Navy's Hollywood relations person. If you want full cooperation from the Navy, we have a considerable amount of power. Because it's our ships, it's our cooperation, and until the script is in a form that we can approve, then the production doesn't go forward. So, you know, that's the military's media relations team openly admitting to using Hollywood as a vehicle for pro-military propaganda. No big deal. But concretely, what does this influence look like? What needs to change for a script to be approved? To answer those questions, you could use literally hundreds of films and TV shows in that database, and the countless examples of how lines that don't exactly fit into the US's narrative have been, let's say, tweaked. For the sake of brevity, let's just take a couple. In the movie 12 Strong, DOD rewrites were minor, cleaning up the physical image of the protagonists and taking homophobic slurs out of their dialogue to present a more sanitized image of the elite American soldier. In the movie Lone Survivor, not so much. Rewrites included removing the main character's urge to commit war crimes and murder civilians while in Afghanistan. In the real story, no war crimes were committed, but they were considered by the military officer who ended up writing the book the movie was based on. In the movie, the protagonist has a clear conscience. No war criminal thoughts here, no sir. In Charlie Wilson's War, a movie meant to comedically recount the story of the US arming the Mujahideen, the sanitized, approved script removes from the original any mention of the US's support leading, at least in part, to the power Al-Qaeda and the Taliban would eventually accumulate. Sometimes it's a small rewrite, sometimes it's a big rewrite. Every time, though, the rewrite conceals some part of the truth, because the truth doesn't look good. These are just a few examples sourced from this article. There are hundreds more. And okay, look, I know how this sounds. It sounds like I'm peddling a conspiracy. How could something so clearly objectionable be going on with no one doing anything about it? These are possibly violations of the First Amendment. Government-sanctioned speech receiving preferential treatment is a problem, and the fact that it's being carried out by the US government itself to justify war? That seems like too big a deal not to be a bigger controversy. On my side of things, it feels weird, and probably does for you too, that to make my case I'm pulling up FOIA documents and sending you to websites you've probably never seen before. I get that. No offense to the Mint Press team, you guys do excellent work. Regardless of the evidence I have presented here, or the fact that much of it is coming directly from the mouths of the people involved, or that several articles linked in the description are published in mainstream media, it's going to sound like I'm some tinfoil hat wearing nut. The thing is, you don't have to believe me on this one fact, that the DoD is censoring Hollywood scripts, to be convinced that Hollywood as a whole is an institution that promotes the interests of the military-industrial complex. Even if the DoD had never addressed its involvement in the scriptwriting of today's blockbusters, which we've seen it does, the existence of the beneficial relationship between our military and our entertainment industry is plain as day. And you can thank two pieces of evidence for that the history of military propaganda in the US, and thematic analyses of the last decade's most popular movies. Roll clip. After the United States enters the war in April 1917, President Woodrow Wilson knows that he needs to mobilize not just the American army, but the American people. And he knows that's a difficult task. So what Wilson does is he launches a massive campaign of propaganda that taps into every media that's available in America at the time. This includes newspapers, movies, posters, toys and games for children, all aspects of popular culture. That's a short clip from the National World War I Museum and Memorial YouTube channel. The rest of the video is in the description. What the host is talking about here is the propaganda efforts of the Committee on Public Information, a US agency that sprung up during the First World War. Posters, news articles, everywhere Americans looked, they were being sold the war effort by their government, including in movies. And wouldn't you know it, it really worked. Most Americans were on board with the war just years after many were firmly opposed to American involvement or simply disinterested. 
Movies like the animated short The Sinking of the Lusitania galvanized American public support for the war, presenting US entry into the conflict as a moral duty rather than getting the country to rally behind the more accurate and crucial role that war profiteering played in the decision to ship soldiers abroad. Less relevant to the war, but a great example of this sort of propaganda effort is the white supremacist movie The Birth of a Nation, widely credited to have revived the KKK in the early 20th century. As it happens, that movie was the first Hollywood venture to receive military support, according to Tanner Murley's book Hearts and Minds, The US Empire's Culture Industry. The reason it's an important tangent is because its box office success supposedly proved to then-President Wilson the effectiveness of movies as a popular medium for propaganda, triggering much of the subsequent military involvement in Hollywood. After World War I, the CPI shuts down and the story picks up in World War II, when the Office of War Information creates the Bureau of Motion Pictures. What's the point of a motion pictures bureau, you ask? Let's consult the head of the OWI, Elmer Davis. The motion picture is the most powerful instrument of propaganda in the world, whether it tries to be or not. The easiest way to inject a propaganda idea into most people's minds is to let it go through the medium of an entertainment picture when they do not realize that they are being propagandized. Elmer, my guy, I don't think you're supposed to say that part out loud. And this kept going. The majority of the big war films that came out between the start of the Cold War until the 60s, and then once again from the 80s to the present, have done so under the direction, approval, and support of the DoD. Okay, that doesn't sound good, but why does any of this really matter? Here we get to the Marxist analysis of superstructures, and you'll see it's a really helpful concept we can use to break this stuff down. To be very, very brief about it, superstructures in Marxist analysis are the elements of our society that aren't directly economic. Law, media, culture, religion, education, whatever you want. If it's something that molds or represents a form of ideology, some ideas we can have about the world, it's probably going to be part of the superstructure. Let's focus on culture. According to Marxist theorists, the production of cultural texts, like movies, is rooted in and influenced by the economic context in which it appears, and in a mutually reinforcing way, can often come to justify and support that economic situation. TLDR, not only does the idea behind the creation of a random movie get influence from its environment, that's not too difficult to imagine, so too does its ability to be distributed widely, to reach many people, to interest an audience. It needs to be relevant to someone to get made, and so will often find relevance by reaffirming the present societal order. In a neoliberal, imperial, capitalist society like the US, which has lived war to war for close to a century, it should be pretty obvious that war is going to feature prominently in our culture. It makes it into so many films, not just because it satisfies someone's monetary interest when it does, but because we couldn't not talk about it. The sinister part of that inevitable truth about media in a society is that the military's influence on media in our society is so large, meaning that even if we want to talk about war more critically, that type of cultural production will always be at a disadvantage. But okay, let's assume that there wasn't any military influence at all, that the DoD had never and to this day does not give a leg up to pro-army movies or effectively censor its critics. If you look at the biggest blockbusters of the last decade, you'll have an incredibly easy time finding that they glorify or offer only weak, superficial critiques to the military apparatus and its logic of imperialism. Look, I'm not a film critic, by the way. Just like you, I watch stuff with my friends, point to the TV screen, and say, that's actually a metaphor for capitalism, and look down while everybody rolls their eyes. But I don't have to be a good film critic. I have YouTube. Both this video by the channel Skip Intro and this one by the channel Just Right are great and thorough breakdowns of the way American exceptionalism and imperialism come to be justified in a prototypical example of pro-military media. The Captain America movies The First Avenger and The Winter Soldier, two movies that unsurprisingly benefited from a close collaboration with the DoD. Throughout the films, America's role as a global superpower, embodied in Steve Rogers' character, is hardly interrogated. He has great power, but he's being a very responsible little man and doesn't abuse it because he's just a good dude and so is America, by the way. Just trust me on that one. Come on, guys, would I ever lie to you about this? No, of course not. 
So in these movies, when US institutions are brought under scrutiny and the heroes turn against S.H.I.E.L.D., the organization meant to represent the Department of Homeland Security, the only real problem the movie ends up portraying with the institution is that it was infiltrated by the evil Hydra. S.H.I.E.L.D. in and of itself was always okay. We just need to get rid of the baddies and then we can get back to the completely justified global police stuff. Those are just two movies, but these kinds of messages are rife in American cinema and the reason I'm even talking about this is that the result of all these thematic implications is that the overall picture we get of the US and its military efforts is not one characterized by the greed behind domination of oil or other natural reserves in the Middle East, the subjugation or outright murder of civilians by military occupation and drone strikes, or the unjustifiable interventions made to oust popular and democratically elected leaders across the world. Thanks to Hollywood, the military almost exclusively looks like a force for good, an industry we can keep justifying giving nearly a trillion dollars to every year so that the Lockheed Martins and Boeings of the world can continue driving up their stock prices. Movies have powerful propaganda potential, and in giving us only weak tools to critique the military, if any at all, they have successfully allowed for the continuous American support for its most massive imperial project to date. Of course, as media consumers, we're not just passive propaganda sponges. But in the absence of good, popular critiques, and under a barrage of pro-military propaganda, even our best defenses can weaken over time. Just something to keep in mind. I get a lot of comments about how my content can be kind of depressing, which is true. I tackle a lot of heavy topics. I have been trying to add more humor recently, but there's no avoiding the fact that talking about major problems can be disheartening or overwhelming. One way I combat these feelings is by trying to maintain healthy habits, like going to the gym, making sure I drink plenty of water, stuff like that. Thanks for watching. And thank you, Second Thought, our best of the net hotspot this week. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.